Okay, so First Corinthians is going to be that exciting. Do you like my new, uh, you know, uh, logo? Yeah, it looks like Clip Art. <laughs> <laughs> <Does> it? <laughs> it looks like Tanner could do it. <laughs> <laughs> I spent four hours on Photoshop. <laughs> 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 you click and paste it. Right? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I get this done pretty quick, so I don't spend a lot of time in it, but I like it. <laughs> Neat. Is that us? Um, yeah, that can be us. So... First Corinthians is exciting. I, uh, you know that some of you remember that we did go through First Corinthians in the past. Oh, yeah. Like someone like Ben and Ken should remember teaching it. <laughs> this is when we had a bigger group that we couldn't really hold the Bible study together. Oh, so we actually we actually split into three small groups. And uh, you know Ben and Ken and who else was it? Wilson. Yeah, Wilson. Wilson and Kamal. Anyway, they tried to. Uh, they were teaching, and it's a long time ago. Yeah, it's like five. It's like five years ago, maybe. And uh, yeah, so it was a while back. But we studied then, and First Corinthians is really exciting because it's not only is it its second longest letter of Paul, so it's got a lot of stuff. Second Corinthians is the third longest letter of Paul, the wow. first one being Romans. But First Corinthians and Romans, just a few sentences, differences in size. So it's got a lot of stuff in it. And as we find out more about what Corinth, the church that the city was in, is like, and what the church struggled with and stuff, that we realize there's a lot of stuff for us to do. A lot of fun stuff because there's a lot of crazy stuff in it. Um, so, but really... When we're trying to do this, I think the first thing that we I really want us to engage in is different than what we have been in previously in previous uh, sermon series is that this is about us. It's got something to do. It's got obviously stuff to do with individually, us, you and I individually, but more to it is about us. So we have to wrap our minds around that and as we're going through this study, reflect on us as a community. And... We may limit ourselves when, we, when we're thinking us to, oh, it's just us on Wednesday night and us on Sunday. And us, and sometimes when we get together. But it's really not it. We as a community, just like your family, even though you're not always together, you are as a family together. So, studying this, try your best to see this as what it means for us as a community. And in a greater sense, us as a church in global. And how you and I are part of it, how we're together, and how it affects those around us, those within us, our community, and how people in the city view us, views us. So, this is a book that's a little different than how we have been engaging, but I think it'll be great for us as a church to reflect on who we are as a church. And there's a lot of negative stuff that's going on, especially in First Corinthians, it's mostly about negative stuff. Like, they're screwing up, they're not doing well, they're making these things, they're doing crazy things. There's things like, you know, this guy is sleeping with his mother-in-law, right? Uh, obviously, none of us are doing that. So we can't really reflect and say, well, we shouldn't do that. Obviously, we shouldn't do that. But the, really, the way we want to engage with it, this is, what should we be doing with that, right? And what should keep us from going that way? Um, how are we failing in that sense? So, the focus here is first and is what we ought to be together as a community and individually, right? And then we reflect on what we aren't doing to that uh, object that we set, that we can find, that we review in the uh, given text when we come together. So, that makes sense? So, that's what we want to do. So, in doing that, we want to be honest and open and vulnerable and gracious with one another and really take it in to really review ourselves as who we are so that we can, in that we can change and we can be led to um, seek help and, you know, seek for change. This church, Lifeline, is not as bad as the Corinthian church. Not at all, right? But it's an opportunity for us to reflect on what we ought to be. How can we be better? In reflecting who Jesus is and learning to live in love like Jesus. So it's an opportunity for us to do that. Uh, we may make fun of other churches uh, with good intention. <laughs> we may criticize other churches and what we hear about other leaders and whatnot with good intention. Uh, but in the end, it's going to be about us. Because we, can, we have a control over who we can be, what we can do. Uh, aside from what the world, how the world abuse Christianity and what the other churches are doing. The theme uh, of this series is Better Together. 
the number one problem, the issue we see in uh, Corinthian church is that they're divided. So Paul's main focus is that we need to come together, be one in the body of Christ, be one. Do not be divided, come together. So the emphasis, the theme is that we are, whether we're doing things wrong, whether, doing, whether we're doing things great, regardless that we're not, to, if we're not together, it's no good. But if we're together, it's better that we need to come together. And in order for us to examine that, we need to go deeper in. Like, are we really together? How are we divided? We're not as diverse as the church in Corinth is, but we are fairly diverse. I think when you look at most American churches, it's either a lot of middle class or poor people and a few rich people, or a lot of rich people or middle class and poor, you know, a few uh, middle class poor people. They always churches used to scoot toward one majority and a few, so they're not really able to reflect on how Corinthian church was because most churches aren't as diverse as Corinthian church. We are better than most churches in America. I think we are spread out pretty well in diversity. Uh, we can be more <laughs> with more women and maybe more non-dark-skinned people. Um, but we are also spread out fairly well. So as we go forward, as we seek to be a church that reflects the demographics of the city, which is very diverse, um, how can we sustain ourselves to be united and together? And that's going to be um, that's going to be challenging. So the theme is being together. So let me pray, and we'll look more into uh, find out more about Corinth. Jesus, we are thankful of this. However, it came to be in our hands. It was you who brought to us, and the words are your words, and they are beneficial for us, leading us to learn to live in love like you, and uh, leading us to seek more of who you are, so that we understand who we are. Help us to see and light up as, us as a community. Help us to draw ourselves individually away, um, yet not forgetting about it, but more inputting ourselves into this community to reflect. We pray the challenges and difficulties we may face in this study uh, will be helped by your Spirit to give us understanding, give us wisdom, and your Spirit will lead us, guide us, and convict us and allow us to form in the manner that pleases you and be a community of truly um, of love. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, so First Corinthians has 16 chapters. So what I imagine is this is going to take us more than six months to go through because we will divide them up. We won't be going through every each chapter per Sunday unlike the, the stories that we've gone through in the past few months. Um, and what we know is basically, since we've been we've gone through this, this is a letter, and it's about a church. That's why they, it's a letter to Corinthians. It's a first letter to Corinthians, and it's from Paul. There's no dispute in that. It's pretty clear. So it's about a church. So let's get to know the church first. There's a map here, which talks about uh, the city of Corinth. One thing that's great about this study is we know more about this church than any other church that are mentioned in New Testament because of the lengthy letters that we see in First and Second Corinthians. But also, there's a story of how church in Corinth came together in Acts chapter 18. So we know a lot about it, and we have a lot of historical resources to know about the city and the church. Uh, and what we see is that church basically reflects the city, and we know what the church is like from Paul's letters. So when you look at this city... Church city of Corinth. Uh, initially, there was an ancient city of Corinth, and you can see in the map that this is where uh, the mainland, mainland of Greece connects. It's between the mainland and the peninsula. So, what it being is that people in the ancient days, instead of sailing around and to open sea of Mediterranean, they would go through that in inside this peninsula, and they would go past through Corinth to be safe. So what it was, was this was a port where all kinds of land traffic and sea traffic had to go through. So in the old days, and this is like 1000 BC, virtually there was no other city in the world that enjoyed more better location than Corinth. So everyone in this region, in Greek 
empire uh, in Greece had to go through for the traffic, uh, whether it's for trades or, or whatnot. Um, city of Corinth uh, began to develop in 1000 BC and reached its peak of prosperity on, uh, around 300 BC, being most influential and prosperous city in Greece. It was destroyed by Romans in 146 BC and rebuilt by Julius Caesar in 44 BC. And this was a capital of Roman province of Achaia. So what we know is the city's location reveals how significant the city is and how affluent and prosperous the city was. It was, it was a lot of people going in and out, a lot of different products being sold, a lot of religions, and a lot of crazy ideas. Um, it has become to be known and the most perverted city with sexual practices in the time. Uh, Greek author Aristophanes Aristophanes in 450 BC coined the new Greek verb to say to Corinthianize, which means that participation in immoral sexual practice was became a verb of it, just to highlight the, the practice of that in Corinth. Uh, there was a thriving homosexual practices according to archaeological discoveries. And later, a historian, Strabo, a Greek historian, uh, spoke of thousand temp- a thousand temple prostitutes um, plying their trade in Corinth at the peak of their prosperity. So there was a word phrase that saying, are you man enough to go to Corinth? And that's how, how much there was in sexual immorality in Corinth. The modern... Corinth was a beautiful city uh, where you see a city with a, a water sea in the front and huge 2,000 feet uh, of altitude mountain in the back. So it was a beautiful city and because the mountain in the back it had a good supply of clean water um, and uh, the Greek historian Strabo states that Corinth was repopulated with free men from Rome. So free man is the one who became free from being slaves. So they're little above slaves, but far below the uh, aristocracy of, uh, of, of Greek and Rome. So this city was known to be where you can make it big. Freedmen would come to Corinth, find a job, find a good trade, and they would make it big. So this was city of opportunity, city where the money was everything, and city that people came to make it big. So a lot of Entrepreneurs, tradesmen, and artists, and philosophers, and a lot of people came to Corinth um, to become part of all of that. Uh, the city was by uh, Romans, uh, ruled and controlled by Romans, with lo- Roman law and culture and religions. And um, it had a lot of re- religions. Uh, at least 26 separate sacred places in Corinth was found archaeologically, and there was a Jewish synagogue, Jewish synagogue there too. Um, so, very diverse religiously. That's why we read in 1 Corinthians later on, when Paul says there are many gods and many lords, referring to diversity of religions in Corinth. This was a home of Isthmian Games, which is second to Olympics. So, what that means is there was a big sporting event going on in this city. This was second to Greek, the all of Greek, Greece. So, that means it had a lot of visitors, um, a lot of men training, uh, getting being fit was a big thing. You see a lot of people running on the street like we do here. Uh, one thing that's known is in the archaeological finding, there was fact that there were women competing in this game along with men. So there was a women's relay, women's 200 meters and women's 100 meters, which was not part of Olympics. So what it shows is there's a lot of feminism going on in this city because there's talk about shaving and a lot of women being free. And, uh, and, you know, sexual freedom as well. So, I think the city sounds a lot like our city, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, sexual freedom, homosexuality, feminism, sports, um, especially now. If you want to make it big, come to San Francisco, you know, build yourself, get yourself an app, you write an app, and then you can be huge, right? Um, this is very much like San Francisco, where people come, there's very little commitment to anything, it's like, make it big, make a lot of money, it's about money, it's about being free, it's about doing what I want, and what I want to be. Now, how did the church come about? 
it's always a church gets planted, right? There's every church gets planted, right? Somebody starts the church, and mainly in the old days, it was in the city that churches got planted. And Christianity, ninety percent of Christianity was in a major city in the Roman Empire, and until the third century, so it was all about city, church in city. Um, people in suburb were called pagans because if you're in suburb, if you're outside a city, you are not Christians. Because you couldn't, you could not have been. Because you would not know about Jesus. So pagans were people outside a city. Were called pagans. City there was a church. It's all about city. You know, when we look at Revelation, we hear about city coming down, God's city coming down, New Jerusalem. That's a city. There's an importance in understanding that we are reach out to city. We are to convert, make the city be God's city, and somehow we are city within the city. Heaven, I believe, is going to be city. So, some of you like countryside and suburb, and I think another pastor joked about this. Well, heaven's going to be city. If you don't like city, then you can go to hell. <laughs> heaven's going to be city, right? Because it's the city of God coming. We talk about city of God, not suburb of God or farm of God. So... This big city was... Corinth was the biggest city that Paul has been to. This, from the other churches that Paul has planted, Corinth was the largest that he's come to um, when he came. Uh, so Acts chapter 18 uh, provides us the story of Corinthian church plant. Uh, so it says that Paul came into the city with much fear and trembling. Because Corinth was the largest city Paul had ever been to. And it was a city of cross-culture, multiracial, um, sexual immorality, religious diversity, and you know people with wickedness and lack of commitment. It was just a big city, crazy ideas, crazy people. So Paul was, when he first came, he was taken back. He had fear and trembling. So imagine like Josh coming into San Francisco. That's what it felt like, probably. Or a lot of people coming from like... Countryside and coming, I'm going to change it. We call them, we joke about how we tend to have a white knights coming into city, San Francisco, say, I'm going to change this city. Um, and they come from like, I don't know, Idaho. Um, imagine those people coming to this big city. That's how they felt. And that's how Paul, that's how Paul felt coming into Corinth. So Paul came into Corinth. He arrived here and he went to work making tents. To support himself, because he needs to make money. And this is very true with church planters. When church planters first start, they need another job. Because obviously, you don't have a church to support. <laughs> I did it. Josh is doing it. And whoever comes to join uh, LifeLight will be bivocational. You know, even now, I'm bivocational with the Young Life. So, church planters will always be bivocational because you don't have a support from the church yet. Right? So, Paul came. He started working tent making. And while he's doing that, he met Aquila and Priscilla, who were both in the same business of making tents. They were especially in the business of linen. And they were, uh, they were a rich couple, too. And uh, they became believers. So Priscilla and Aquila and Priscilla were his core group. Church starts with core group. A few people that are devoted, that have the same vision and mission for the church. And we also learned that Silas and Timothy arrived with the financial support from Philippi which enabled Paul to go in full-time. He didn't have to work anymore. Now, that's his support group. So a couple of things that church plant needs is core group and support group so that the church planter can go and work full-time. It's not always the case, but those are what a uh, church planter needs, and that's what Paul had. Now, usually this is what Paul does. When he gets to a city, when he gets to a town, he goes to synagogue and he starts teaching. And usually what happens is synagogue is divided over the teaching of Jesus. There are some people who agree with Paul. There's some people who's, there are some people who are against it. right? Um, so Paul was asked to leave by the majority of people who were against his teaching. And it turns out that there was a house next door to the church or synagogue and said, hey, come to this house. The owner of that house was Titius Justus, who's a Gentile. And, you know, um, no, no. The owner of the house was Crispus, who was a Gentile, and uh, and he was he became a uh, Christian, 
and he supported Paul. So he, they started meeting in the next door house, but apparently that wasn't far enough, obviously. So they started, the Jews in the synagogue started complaining again. Right? So uh, there was a lot of tension, there was a lot of conflict, and what we see at the end of uh, Acts chapter 18 is Paul has stayed there for about a year and a half, and these people have, and Jewish people from the synagogue have decided to take Paul to court, um, to Roman court, which is ruled at this time by proconsul Gallio, Gallio, Gallio. And uh, Gallio is a historical person, and he's actually a significant person for us as Christians in understanding New Testament and dating New Testament. We know that Gallio was around from year uh, AD 50 to 52. This is the, the anchor point in, for us to figure out all the years in the New Testament regards to Paul's ministry. Because from this, we can calculate when Paul did, went to where, when this happened, and when that happened. So this is a historical person. And what Gallio did, he threw the case out of court. He basically said, this has nothing to do with the Roman um, government. And he threw out the court. He said, I'm not going to deal with this. You're on your own. So at that time, Paul left Corinth. And his support group, Aquila and Priscilla, left with Paul to Ephesus. So after Gallio dismissed the case, the people in the Jewish you know, synagogue were upset. And so they took out the, the uh, Crispus uh, successor in the leader of synagogue. Um, his name was Sustenus. And they took him out and they started beating him. Um, and that's what we know. And we'll come back to that. So in the meantime, here's what we know about the church in Corinth. When Paul has left, Church in Corinth included Jews, Greeks, slaves, and freemen. There were a few, maybe two or three rich families, but most of the people were, uh, were poor, you know, working class people. But church had enough finance money because Paul asked Corinth to send money to Jerusalem church, so which means apparently church had a good finance uh, stability. Uh, but overall, it's a predominantly Gentile community with pagan idolatry foundation. So what we see in the first Corinthians is there's a talk about eating meat, there's talk about marriage, there's talk about legal process that's done in Roman way, uh, there's a denial of resurrection, and there's a you know part where they claim the right to go to prostitute. Uh, they said we have right to go to prostitute, you know, because it's legal and we can do it as a man. So their very their foundation is pagan belief, and they're all new Christians. They're not Jewish. They're mostly Gentile new Christians. So they're confused with a lot of things, what a church should be and what a, what a Christian what a Christian group should do. So that's Corinth, and that's the church in Corinth. This is important, because this will play in background in us understanding what's going on as we move forward. And this will also allow us to compare what we read in the letter to Corinthians to us. And we see that we're very much alike, the group in Corinth, right? And we're, the city is very much alike, San Francisco. But it also has to do with Paul's relationship with this church in Corinth. So let me give you a broader picture of Paul's relationship with the Corinth. Prior to 1 Corinthians, Paul had actually already written a letter to Corinth. So in, the scholars call this the previous letter. And in that, he talks about how you know Corinthians should not deal with the wicked people and stay away from morally um, immoral people and all of that. What we know is that prior to writing 1 Corinthians, which is the second Corinthians, uh, a member of a church, and it says it's a Chloe's family member, or the sent from Chloe's house, came to Corinth about to tell Paul about the wrong things that are terrible that's going on in church in Corinth. So people came to report to Paul. Um, more people than just close people, there's a group uh, of Corinthians called Stephanus, uh, Fortunatus, and Achaicus came to see Paul. And there was also a letter that's written to Paul about all these theological questions. Should we do this? How, do, how should we deal with that? And how should we deal with that? So you can see, 1 Corinthians is Paul's response to all of this. People who came to see him, reported him about stuff that's going on, and also a letter that was written to him about all the questions that needs to be answered. We also know that church in Corinth was uh, led by Apollos, which was a partner of Paul until they split up. And also Peter also served as a leader in Corinth too. We'll get to know more about that next week. 
So, 1 Corinthians, which is second letter, was written in Ephesus approximately in the spring of uh, AD 53 to 54. So, from the time that Paul had left to the second letter, there was about a period of two years or less. So, sometime after writing 1 Corinthians, Paul traveled, traveled from Ephesus to visit Corinth. So, he actually came to Corinth. Um, and so, but this, Paul refers it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This is often called as a painful visit because when Paul came, someone in the church challenged Paul's authority and Paul thought, okay, well, people are going to back me up. But people did not in church. So no one rallied behind Paul and Paul left quickly because his authority was challenged. So that was a painful visit for Paul and he writes a letter afterward. This is the third letter. And we call this, scholars call this letter a sorrowful letter or severe letter. Because in that, he, Paul talks about the person who challenged Paul and rebuked the church for not coming to Paul's support. So, severe letter. Once the, when Corinthians received the letter, it says that they reconsidered, they thought about what they did, they repented, and they decided to show support for Paul. So, Paul sent Titus to work with the Corinthians with this letter, and Corinthians actually turned around. Uh, but Paul was really affected by this. It says that Paul traveled to Troas, which was really open for the gospel, but he said he could not preach because what had happened in Corinthians hurt him so much he could not focus. So this was a, a, a big impact uh, for Paul's ministry. So he left Troas and, tr- and traveled to Macedonia, and that's when Titus met with Paul and gave Paul good news. Hey, they change. They want to change. They want to do better. They want to welcome you. You know, they they listen to everything that your letter said. They're good. So what we find in the second Corinthians, which is the fourth letter that he's written to Corinthians, is all of joy and and you're doing great. You're wonderful. Keep it up and all of that. So it's a good letter to Corinthians. The second letter to second Corinthians. Um, and second Corinthians is dated from fifty five to fifty six, which means from the uh, Paul's visit, the painful visit to Second Corinthians, there was about a half year or one year or a half year, uh, one and a half year gone by. So that's the relationship that Paul has with his church. So what we find in First Corinthians is that it's just answering a lot of questions, a lot of rebuking. Uh, after that relationship was really hurt, but they came back, and we find in 2 Corinthians, they're really happy. We're not going to go through 2 Corinthians. We're just going to go through this one. Maybe we'll come back in later time. Uh, but that's what we're dealing with. So it's important for us to understand that. So that's the leader of the church, Paul, the church planter of Corinth, and the church. It's their story that we're going to get into. But we also want to reflect on our story, this church. What do you know about this church, Lifelight? If I was to like tell you the story of Lifelight, just like Paul's story, then came to San Francisco. Uh, he actually did come to San Francisco in 2006, but came back from Kansas City, right? So our story is that I came to city with hope to plant a church, uh, and I was employed at Young Life. And first group of high school students, first group of high school students that went to Woodleaf came back. They became believers. And there were about five of them say, well, let's start a church. Uh, I should not have listened to their advice, but I did. <laughs> so I said, okay, great, let's start. So it was five high school kids, me, uh, starting this church. And that's how we started. And for the years, for what next two years, it was a lot of them learning. We did Bible study. It was a lot of me driving them home, picking them up. Um, it was like four evenings and... In every week with high school students hanging out at my house, Bible study, church. It was a lot of that. But we did reach out to a lot of young people. So Lifelight was essentially, you know, a church for the young life kids. When they first wanted to know more and decided to become believer, this was the first church. And for most people, this was the first church ever. Which is really odd because this isn't a very normal church. We had like... People, you know, we had a girl who get dropped off and their mom would yell at her because, you're lying to me and you're not going to church. This isn't a church. This is just a house. Right? So, it was a really interesting experience for me because even though people have never been to church, they have a um, 
presupposition of what a church should be. And LifeLife really didn't fit that, uh, which was interesting, uh, which I thought was great because we really went into core of what a church should be, which is learning about Jesus and, and learning to live in love like Jesus. Uh, let me give you a little bit more. Um, in 2008, we moved to Sunset Youth Service because there were too many of us to be in my house. Um, and a bunch of them left to go to college. <laughs> so it was a smaller group meeting at Sunset Youth Service. And we thought, well, this isn't working out. And, uh, and the environment wasn't really good. So we moved back to my house. And then we moved here to this house. So, but um, that was summer of 2009, after the summer of 2009. In 2010, it wasn't just me, you know, someone who stuck around, Young Life College grew, and there was someone named Alex, and he became Young Life leader. He became a leader, he went and reached out to a bunch of high school, or forced a bunch of high school students to come to forced. church. Mostly forced. And you know, the thing was, I wasn't even here. That one Sunday, and Esther called me, and there's too many people here in, my, in this house. We can't have all these people. So, first thing I did when I came back, I don't know where I was. I was gone. Um, first thing, no, because it's a Sunday after Woodlift, there were a bunch of people here. So, we said, oh, we need to find a, a new location, a different location to meet. So, we moved out to Sunset Church. They were really gracious and oh, yeah. letting us use their beautiful facility. We went there, and we really dwindled it down, <laughs> because Alex no longer forced kids to go, and they all graduated, and they went to college. So we ended up to, like, four people. Uh, so we decided to move back here, and all of that was especially learning experience for me. I realized uh, what I did wrong, what we did wrong together as a community, and what we should focus on, and we really came to be... Uh, to find together, again, the value and the mission and vision for this church, which is really committed believers, learning and being involved, committed to give, committed to serve, and committed together. Mm-hmm. So, that's, here we are. We are still a church for new believers. We'd love to be church for new believers. We are all about reach out to people. We don't want to be church of existing believers. We want to be church that's freshed by receiving fresh air every time we find a new believer coming to be part of us. It's my hope that more than 50% of who we are as a church are non-believers, yet not yet believers, but those who are interested in learning about Jesus. And that's still who we are. And my hope is that this church doesn't grow to be just a typical church, but we grow to be just the multiplication of this, who we are. So I hope that we split and we become another house church and that we split again and we become more house churches. But we're united together financially in leadership so that we're working together, yet we're meeting separately. There's a book that I read. uh, It's called Hybrid Church. Do you know why church people look for a small church? What do people look for small church? Small community. Small community. Within it, there's Talking what? To pastors quicker. <laughs> more intimate relationships. There's a- access to leaders. More um, closer development of discipleship and whatnot. Why do people uh, like large church besides the? Because it's just music because, and, because music and nobody like. Right, besides the negative things, which we'll talk about, what's the great about large church? You don't want to be noticed. No, no, not individual. <laughs> what's the great thing about large church? What do we see large church doing and wish, oh, that's great that they're doing? They do a lot of things, right? Yeah, yeah they expand, they do a lot of things. They can actually impact the community. Imagine there'd be a mega church in San Francisco where there are 10,000 people meeting in San Francisco. You understand what that church can do? Mm-hmm. It can really bring in an impact to the city. So that's a great about large church, the mega church. Yeah. So hybrid church is where there's an intimacy and there's an impact that a church can bring. So that my answer to that, especially in a city like San Francisco, we cannot have a facility, we cannot have property, um, and it's not ideal, it's not doesn't make sense financially, but we can multiply and become 
where there's intimacy and there's impact that we can bring into the city, especially with the way that we are focused in growing disciple makers, making disciple makers. Okay, so that's us. So think about us, think about Church in Corinth, think about what would it be if Dan wrote a letter, if I went away, and believe me, sooner or later I'm going to go away. You're going to be left without me. This is your church, right? Josh may take a part of it, Josh may leave too. Someone will come, it's going to be your church. The church is not identified by the leaders of the church, it's you. You don't say, I go to Life Flight, you say, I am Life Flight, right? Because church is you. So imagine that I went away and I heard crazy stuff that you're doing and I wrote back to you, right? <laughs> Think of that kind of being the letter uh, to Corinthians. So there's much to reflect and much to learn about from this letter. Okay, so let's go ahead and look at our text. That's the introduction. That is the introduction. So let's look at First Corinthians chapter one, verse one to nine. I'm gonna read a verse, and you're gonna read the next one. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sustenus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always to you because of the grace of God. For in every way you have been enriched in Him, in speech and knowledge of every kind. Just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end, so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By Him you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, when you read this, what you get is very conventional greeting of the letter, right? And we, we don't need to really cover the conventional stuff, like saying hi and all of that. But what we want to see is, what are the unique things that Paul is addressing here? What's unique, what's important to Paul as he writes this? So, let's look at this. Verse 1, Paul says, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sustenus. This is the basically salutation of typical letter which identifies the writer and the recipient. And we know that Paul is the writer. And another person is Sustenus. We know this person. This person has to be mentioned as the one who got beat up by his own congregation in Jewish synagogue. What happened to this person? Why is he with Paul, who left Corinth? So you can run your imagination wild, but you can also imagine that maybe Paul reached out to him when he was bitten by his own people. Maybe Paul took the person who wanted to take him to court and destroy him and gave him, brought him grace. And his grace changed him and led him to Christ. In either case, you can imagine what might have happened to this person because that is significantly incredible. And but what we know is by men Paul mentioning this person, he was a significant person for the Corinthians to know Paul through. Another word is called. We're going to go through some of the Greeks as we study First Corinthians. The Greek word for call is epikolomenos, and that's a passive word. What's a passive? It's when the it's, it's when the patient becomes the subject. Right, it's passive. They're upon. They've been acted upon, not acting. So what that means is somebody else called this person. There's a higher authority that had called this person. Sometimes the it's translated wrongfully, as in like Paul called himself an apostle. It's not. He he has been called, um, which basically means it wasn't his choosing, but his obedience to God's choosing that he is an apostle. And that means being an apostle, being called by God, as we all are, means that we belong to Christ. We are not owned, we are not on our own, we belong to Christ. 
One thing unique about this letter is that you can see Paul's concern to stress his authority. I told you that Peter was there, Apollos was there. We're going to get into next week where his authority is challenged because of these people. People are divided because they're saying, oh, I'm on Apollo's side, I'm on Peter's side, I'm on Paul's side. So Paul is reasserting his authority by saying, I'm called, I'm an apostle by the will of God. And he's trying to weave into next statement which is coming after verse 10. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and our Lord. The recipient of the letter is church in Corinth. And it's for everybody. All Christians. This is the only letter by Paul that he addresses to all Christians. That means us too. He's writing to us. Stuff that's in this letter is important enough that Paul says, it's for you, people in Corinth, but it's for everybody. Because this is important enough for everybody. Uh, another thing is, Paul calls Corinthians saints. He says right here, called to be saints. They're called to be saints. Are they anything like saints? No, they're not. They're getting drunk at communion. <laughs> They're shouting insults to each other and fighting. One of them sleeping with you know, his mother-in-law. There's a bunch of men who wants to go to prostitutes and they want to get, get licensed to go to prostitutes. There are preachers, different teachers, all talking at the same time, arguing in the, in the church service. There's a woman who wants to shave, the woman who's chatting, woman who's arguing uh, at the same time, uh, not listening to anybody. There's peop- the, you know, the church is split into different groups. They're talking about all these petty things about religions and petty things they should do about resurrection and all of these things. This is not an ideal group of Christians. Yet, Paul calls them, you are called to be saints. He's not calling them saints. You see that there's a lot of sarcasm that he's going to say. Say, you're called to be saints, which you're not. Right? Which you're not. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is common Roman greeting. Uh, Peace is Jewish greeting. You understand that? So this is also two words that Paul loves, Paul uses a lot, which is, grace is said, right? And peace is what? In shalom, shalom, right? said and shalom. So he's kind of bringing two together, Greek and Jews together in his greeting. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always to you because of the grace of God, that has been given to you in Christ Jesus. When Paul says, always here, I always thank God, he means repeatedly, and whenever I pray, doesn't mean constantly, you know, every moment. Now this verse, this is Paul at his diplomatic best, because he's not, he cannot thank God for, like other churches, you look at Paul's other letters, letters to Romans, he said, I'm thankful, I thank God for your faith. In his letter to uh, Philippians church, he said, I'm thank- I thank God for the partnership in the gospel with you. In his letter to Colossians church, he says, I thank God for your faith and love. And in church in Thessalonia, he said, I thank God for faith, love, and hope. He can't say any of these things to Corinthian church. Because he can't. There's nothing else to be thankful of. So he said, I thank God for the grace given to them. This is not a compliment. This is saying, I thank God for grace of God, because otherwise, you will be doomed, right? This is like calling someone, you know, you're pretty smart for a stupid person, right? <laughs> That's what it is. It's for telling people, you know, you have really helped me grow in my patience. You know, that's like that. what it is. <laughs> this is not a compliment. Paul is saying, there's nothing else to be thankful to God about you, I'm just thankful God is gracious. Otherwise, you will be not where you are, right? So this is not a compliment. So what follows is their objective state rather than their subjective behavior. Paul picks up what they should be doing rather than what they're actually doing, trying to point out the positive things. So you take a look at what I have here. This is all the things that Paul says in these nine verses says four things about God. God has a will. God, has, God is our Father. God extends grace. God is faithful. says eight things about Jesus. Jesus calls the apostles 
Jesus makes the Corinthians holy, Jesus sustains them, and Jesus is the Son of God who creates a special fellowship. This is all the things Paul is saying in these nine verses, but pay attention particularly what he says about the community. This is what a community should be. This is not what they're doing. What Paul is doing is bringing out the positive side. This is what you ought to be. Think about what you ought to be first. Think that you have a higher calling. This is what you ought to be. The church has apostles and brothers and sisters. The Corinthians are made holy. You are made holy. You are called to be saints. There's an emphasis on what they're called to be and their calling to follow. All believers are called by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're all called, all together, all of you. All of you are supposed to be leaders. Priests of, of all believers. That's what we believe in, right? Life light. In life light, all of you are leaders. Number four, they are recipients of grace and peace. Grace they receive is a source of thanksgiving. There's always reason to give thanks, especially when things go wrong. Six, they are enriched by speech, knowledge, and all spiritual gift. Meaning, even at this time, there's evidence in the presence of Holy Spirit. Because some people, there is an evidence of gift of the Holy Spirit in you. That means, there is, when you're screwing everything up, there is God actively working in you. Number seven, they will be sustained guiltless to the end. They can persevere because God will sustain them. Number eight, they are called into fellowship of God's sons. Ultimately, it's about Jesus. It's about being with Jesus. It's about loving Jesus. It's about following Jesus and learning to live like Jesus. So let me point out two things real quick. What Paul is doing here. I want to look at my note. So it goes quick. Maybe not. <laughs> First, Paul is calling them to their higher calling. This is what you ought to be. You are important. It's same for us. I think you look at ourselves. We're small what do we do? Little things we do. It doesn't. It seems very trivial. It doesn't seem a lot. But what Paul is saying is, we need to understand that we are part of something really big. We're part of God's story, God's redemption in this world, and that makes us, every one of us, important, huge. What we do, little things it may be, we don't know its effect, the way that God is using us. What we do is critical. So in return, we need to take it seriously. We need to take our call important. Regardless of how big we are, regardless of how things we do may appear uh, trivial, it's important. Secondly, what Paul is doing is we need to be honest with ourselves and guard against false claim of maturity. Corinthians thought, oh, we're great. Look at all the gifts we have. We're all up there. I think, I think a lot of Christians come to a place where they think, oh, I got this. Oh, I met the good relationship with Jesus. I think I'm a pretty good Christian. We need to guard against false first understanding of maturity. I think what we went through as a, as a church in our retreat, the stages we went through, I think that helped us to understand there's a long way to go. There's a lot of work we need to do within ourselves and encourage each other and support each other to get there. That's Paul. Paul is saying, you're terrible. But this is what you ought to be. It's important that you be this. You get to this because God's work is in you and that is important. So I want to invite all of you to reflect on how important you are to God. How important this community is to God. Do you believe that we can change the city? Do you believe that you can change the lives of people around you? That every little thing you do, you say, one Bible study we do, one gathering we do, one hanging out and having barbecue or going out for dessert. Anything that we do as a community is important. It's critical. So we need to bring in full, I guess, you know, understanding and bringing full effort into making it good. Because everything, every little thing is important. The, one of the books I want to suggest to you is a book by um, Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
So I have the reference here. I want to encourage all of you to read it while we're going through First Corinthians. And here's a quote. Ben, do you want to go ahead and read that quote? Sure. If we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even where there is no great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith, and difficulty, if on the contrary we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we expected, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for us, for us all in Jesus Christ. Bonhoeffer talks through his book how essential Christian fellowship is, how important that we recognized being together, life together, journeying together. So I want to recommend that we reflect on that and you guys get a chance to read on that. Um, what's one thing that's amazing is God's grace continues on when people are making things bad things. right? God's grace is there. His work continues on. He still holds us to continue in His work even when we make mistakes, even when we do poorly. It's the grace of God that sustains us. And it's because of grace of God, we can continue on and we can hope in becoming the people of God that God desires us to be. Being a community that's learning to live in love like Jesus. Let me pray. Jesus, it's amazing how you sustained a church like Corinth how you sustained leaders like Paul, bad leaders, good leaders, your work continued on, not because of us, but because of your grace. And we are thankful that it's not our doing only, but it's your grace that will sustain us, that we can depend on. Help us, as we study First Corinthians, to reflect on ourselves, not with feeling of guilt or judgment, but with thanksgiving of your grace and with the hope that we can be great because you called us to be great, to do awesome things. In Jesus' name, amen.